All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be gathered together as your children and to willingly be listening for your spirit and your word. We ask, Father, that you direct us and guide us. Give us what we need this evening for our souls, for our walks with you, so that we can bring you the most glory. Most of all, Father, we're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us never be familiar with what you did for us 2,000 years ago, for all mankind, so that we could be free from sin and death forever and ever. Father, please bless everything that goes on and everyone listening this evening. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Plainly Stated Doctrine in the Book of Acts, Part 3. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, it's been a lot of fun for me. Um, I noticed that just the, you know, the quickness of going through the book, it might be kind of like a lot at times, going from one topic to another to another, but... You know, whatever, again, the Spirit gives you, and uh, also keep in mind the big picture that He's trying to show us uh, the value of plainly stated things and how we're not to complicate it, but we can take these things uh, wholeheartedly and grab onto them and rely on these things because they're so clearly stated in the Word of God. So we'll do a little review um, from Sunday, for a few key points from Sunday, and then we'll finish up the series tonight, uh, getting all the way to the end of Acts, believe it or not. So, first off, a point came forward on Sunday which came across much stronger than I had thought it was going to be. So we have to take that from the Spirit as something He wanted to stress for us and, and to take to heart. So on the board, we saw 2 Corinthians 11.3. It was really like, you know, I don't want to say a throw-in, but it wasn't a main point in the lesson. But it was something the Spirit brought up, and, and it kept coming up throughout the lesson on Sunday, if you remember. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Satan would like nothing more than for us to get, uh, for us to complicate it, for us to get confused, uh, you know, rationalizing things. Making more of things than than are even that are even than are even said in the word. So just be really like aware of that. Be on guard for that. Satan wants to do that. He wants to deceive us, pervert things, um, so that we can't enjoy the simplicity and the purity of it. It's really simple. I mean, the, the whole the whole plan of God is for a child to be able to follow His commands from a humble heart. So if we get away from that, we're messing it up. So just keep that in mind, this verse, very important. Don't let it happen to you. Embrace the truth as you see it in the Word, and don't let it go if you're convicted that it is truth from the Word. When faced with plainly stated truths in the Word of God, we must embrace them fully, rejoicing in their simplicity, and not allowing the devil to sneak in and muck it up by his craftiness. We also saw on Sunday Matthew 10:16 where Jesus said, 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is a very real battle. This is a very real um, ugly, cruel, deceptive war going on in the spiritual realm. So that's why he says, you're sheep. I've rescued you. You're my sheep, but I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves. So if that's true, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Look to the right and to the left. Like, just be aware of your surroundings. Don't let things, you know, sneak in on you and take you over. So the book of Acts, as I hope you've seen, is full of treasures that are pretty simple, like beautiful jewels from God. Plainly stated doctrine is there for all of us to embrace without hesitation, and the simplest things are often the most beautiful. Thank God, God's not like you have to become a PhD in theology to bring me glory. Thank God it's the opposite. So let's pick it up in an interesting point the Spirit gave us on Sunday on obedience, even pertaining to the gospel. Turn again to Acts 5, verse 29. Acts 5, 29. As I was thinking about it, this really really fills in the blanks regarding the will being involved in salvation also. Acts 5.29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So the plain statement we grabbed on Sunday on the board is that God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. Not too complicated, you can't misconstrue it. We know that man's will is also involved in believing, just from seeing the word obey being involved in a salvation context. On the board again, it's the man who's willing to surrender his own will and turns to Christ that has saving faith. And therefore, he receives the Holy Spirit as a seal of his salvation. We know that from Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30. We're not going to turn there, but that those uh, basically say that. The Spirit's given as a seal of our salvation to those who believe. So that's what faith looks like again. It's humble it's repentant, it's obedient even. On the board, we saw 2 Thessalonians 1.8, talking about the Lord coming back the second time, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we talked about the problem of man throughout all Scripture, disobedience to the Lord. You know, maybe the white elephant in the room, but the Lord definitely confronted it, so I guess it wouldn't be that. But it's the obvious thing. It's the consistent problem of man getting in the way and being stubborn and having or trying his own way. Man's main problem has always been a stubborn and unrepentant heart, just like many Jews had in the Old Testament times and as we've seen in Romans 2, 4 through 5. So there is a call from God to obey his gospel. 
There's a reason it says this in these scriptures. On the board, 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Regarding obedience to the Lord, the believer enters into a surrender slash obedience at the moment of salvation, which is totally granted by God, by the way. Otherwise, how could one obey the gospel of God? And he receives a new heart that produces a lifestyle of obedience in some form of good fruit. But again, the interesting thing is that the believer enters into a surrender obedience at the moment of salvation. That's what saving faith looks like. That's what repentance looks like. It's not some believing of facts to join a club, you know, to cover your butt just in case. It is a heart decision. And the will is involved too, as seen in the word, obey. So again, also we're not talking about perfect obedience, but obedience is one of the characteristics in the life of true believers. At this point, the Spirit interjected a reminder to us all on Sunday. Let's read through this one more time in Acts 6, verse 1. Acts 6, 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So just a little reminder again. I mean, do you really want your pastor um, tending to the details of running the church? Or would you rather have him studying and praying for your benefit? Specifically for your soul and your growth and your health. Obviously, that's what we want. To allow our pastor 100% focus on spiritual things is very wise for all involved. And that is the very reason that deacons came about in the early church. So again, just a friendly reminder from the Spirit, and thank God we have our faithful deacons to uh, go to with any other needs. Also on Sunday, we saw a man that needed to repent of his repentance. Go to Acts 8, verse 18. Acts eight eighteen. His name was Simon, and his supposed repentance and faith apparently wasn't a heartfelt contrition, but was from bad motivation. As Peter plainly states, his heart wasn't right before God. That's a big deal, right? Your heart's not right before God. Again, that's what's important to God. Acts 8.18 Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. 
for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in bondage, the bondage of iniquity. So here we have more evidence in Scripture of repentance being an issue of the heart, not just a mental assent for some type of personal gain. And unfortunately, that's the motivation of a lot of churchgoers, at least in our culture. Personal gain is behind the motivation, behind the doing of something that appears to be good. For example, Simon here wanted power that the apostles had. He wanted the power. Pretty sad. That's not someone humble before the Lord saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. The churches, in today's churches, people want something for themselves, whether it be reputation or pleasing people or uh, advancement, um, a mate we talked about. Their heart's not right before God if that's the reason they're there. That's between each person and God, but we know it exists. On the board, a religious confession without a heartfelt repentance leaves a person unconverted. Once again, in this passage, we see God looks at the heart, which means he also knows the motivation, why someone is doing what they're doing. It may appear good to us, but it could be bad. So we also saw a more plainly stated doctrine in Acts 10. Uh, you can go to Acts 10, verse 34. Here Peter is speaking with the Gentiles, whom God set up a meeting with for him. And again, up to this point, the Jews were not even to associate with the Gentiles. So this was a big deal. Acts 10.34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So we know and embrace by now, hopefully, that God does not show partiality. He loves all and came for all. And as we see here, every man is welcome to him if they fear him and do what is right. And as came out on Sunday, I hope you see repentance and faith in this scripture, even though those words aren't used. On the board, the believer described in Acts 10.35, fears him is a sign of true repentance that one has when he realizes he has sinned against God and wants to turn from it. Does what is right is an indication or a fruit of saving faith of the person who has humbly turned to Christ for his salvation. So I hope you see it. This is the pattern we've been seeing over and over, and it's throughout the whole Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Then we see Peter recounting his visit with the Gentiles to the believing Jews. Go to Acts 11.15. We're still doing a review of a few key points on Sunday. And the believing Jews, the believing Jews, the Christians were opposed to what Peter did. They didn't understand yet. But in Acts 11.15, it says, As I began to speak, Peter's talking, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, 
God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So we have two plainly stated truths here. God gives his Holy Spirit to whoever believes in him. We just saw that in another verse, whoever obeys him, right, gets the Spirit. But also, God is the one who grants repentance that leads to eternal life. The order here is very important because there's an inescapable conclusion that the apostles come to. And again, we saw this on Sunday on the board. In Acts 11, 17 through 18, it plainly states, If they receive the Holy Spirit by believing in Christ, then God must have granted them repentance. That must have been what happened. Because someone doesn't believe without an attitude of repentance. Faith and repentance are intrinsically bound. You cannot have one without the other. And this verse is another way the Spirit is revealing this to us. So then we see some plainly stated, uh, stated truth regarding those that refuse to believe in Acts 13.46. Go there again, Acts 13.46. Kind of in survey mode here. We're going kind of fast, but hopefully you heard Sunday's message if you weren't here. Acts 13.46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said... It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So as we saw on Sunday, apparently it's possible for man to judge himself unworthy of eternal life. Paul plainly states this is what just occurred with some of the Jews that rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So here again is what we see on the board, what we've been learning uh, in the last couple of weeks, man is personally accountable to God in regards to salvation. And if man rejects the grace gift of God, he basically condemns himself. Or in these words, he judges himself unworthy of eternal life. Acts 13.46, we just read, and John 8.23-24. So God honors man's free will and the stubborn will will be left to his own unworthiness. That's all it comes down to. It's pretty simple. He will unfortunately die in his sins too, as Scripture says, as the Lord said to the stubborn Pharisees. On the board in John 8, 23 and 24, and he was saying to them, Jesus was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. We have more plainly stated doctrine in Acts 14, where we left off on Sunday. Go to Acts 14, 22. And we'll start to slow down now and finish up this series with some new points. Acts 14, 22 through 23. Paul says, strengthening... The souls of the disciples, Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Once again, the sooner we accept plainly stated truth like this, the sooner we'll be free from the bondage we put ourselves into. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Life in this world is not meant to be perfect. And life in this world is not meant to be about you, honestly. Your life in this world was given to you by God for God. And until we accept that wholeheartedly, we're going to be in bondage to the things that keep you know, entangling us, the sins that keep entangling us. The world system keeps deceiving us. We have to accept these things from the heart. Paul had the peace of Christ, even though he was almost stoned to death. And he kept going forward no matter what. Why did Paul keep going forward after these things that happened to him? He knew his purpose. He accepted his purpose. You know, he wasn't fighting against it. He's basically telling these guys, the Lord told me directly, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul said, okay. Let's do it. I want to do it for you. Lead me, empower me. Can't do it myself. But because he accepted that calling, which is on all of us, he's set free by it. So as we saw on Sunday, are you willing to stop living for yourself, trying to make your life all comfortable in this world where you're just visiting, and simply accept that you're calling to live for Christ, which includes tribulations as we enter the kingdom of God? Are you willing? Once again, willingness is the key. So be encouraged. Accept your calling. If you are willing to humble yourself before the Lord and His will for your life, You'll be at peace. And when tribulations come, you won't be surprised. And God will give you the power to get through them. And you'll bring God glory. So we begin to slow down now as we visit some new passages in Acts. Go to Acts 16, verse 6. And we see another plainly stated principle that we can embrace in our personal lives. In this passage... Apparently, it's possible for each member of the Trinity to guide us and direct us in our daily walk. Look at Acts 16.6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to, into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So I hope you see all three members of the Trinity mentioned there. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, and God the Father guiding this trip, guiding their direction. So we know from Scripture that God is one and God is spirit. Being the same God and Lord, all three members of the Trinity are active in our personal lives. It really shouldn't be a surprise. They're all the same God. Um, and not that we need to discern which member of the Trinity is helping us right now, you know, but they're all, they're all the same. They're all one. They're all one. Again, we can't put this into words. He's God, and He directs you, if we listen. But we can rejoice in the truth that He will direct us, if we are humble before Him. 
And the reason, you know, I'm bringing this up is sometimes people try to fit God into that doctrinal box, you know, to have everything kind of figured out. And some people think it's only the Spirit that guides and directs us, which Scripture definitely does say to us. But here we see all three members of the Trinity guiding Paul. And who is the Spirit? God. Whose Spirit is it? It's Christ. We've seen this over and over in the last um, few months. This has been an emphasis. So while God expresses Himself in different ways as Father, Son, and Spirit, accept the plainly stated truth here. Rejoice that He's one and that He's faithful and He's going to lead you and guide you regardless of which member of the Trinity it might be at the time. Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't visit the story of the humbled Philippian jailer in Acts 16. So go to Acts 16, verse 29. It doesn't get much more plainly stated than this, so we, we've got to include it in this study, even though you know this, fat, this passage. Acts 16, 29. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So we thank God that when we come to our knees like this Philippian jailer, you know, when we have a repentant attitude like this, it's faith alone in Christ alone that saves us. And that offer is for ourselves and the members of our households, for all who are willing. Go to Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The plainly stated point here to focus on is in verse 31. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Fix the day. And it's through the very one who was appointed and rose from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. But to those who reject the payment that he made for them, judgment looms. And even though God gave man proof that Jesus is this appointed one by raising him from the dead, man still rejects him as the one appointed by God. And unbelievers are going to be held accountable on the day of judgment. But here's the point we can take from this, is that unbelievers need to be told there is a fixed day of judgment coming a fixed day of judgment in God's mind it's already fixed and set and known we don't know the day or the hour but there's a fixed day of judgment coming and it may be soon according to the signs of the times so people need to be told of their need to repent and trust in Christ I don't know how I don't know when I don't know you know how God's gonna work that out in your soul or the, the right words to say to each individual person it, again it's different every time as we read the scriptures, isn't it? Throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts, every single giving of the Gospels is different. So, again, let that set you free. And be like, there's not one way to do this. There's infinite amounts of ways to do this. So how God 
helps you bring up repentance to somebody, let it happen. But it's part of our calling in the Great Commission before it's too late. And God brings certain people in our path as evangelists, told to do the work of evangelists, listen to the Spirit and allow Him to fill your mouth, as Scripture says. And also remember this, you may be the only one in their lives who's willing to tell them the truth. It's not always comfortable. There's times I'm, I have someone in front of me and I'm like, I really don't want to bring this up right now. You know, as funny as that might sound. But if you're going to tell them the whole story, you know, and you're going to tell them repentance and, and what God wants, the heart that he wants, not your religious, you know, ritual, then it's going to be uncomfortable at times. But you know what? No one else might tell them the truth. We have more and more cowards in our society, even in Christianity. Just look at the watered-down gospel. I don't want to bring up repentance. I'll just bring up the good part, and hopefully they accept him. But in the meantime, they're doing them a disservice. But anyway, in Hebrews 9.27, in the NIV on the board, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. You know, your job might be to let someone know this verse exists and walk away. That might be the seed that you're appointed to plant for somebody. You might have like a, just 30 seconds with somebody, and it comes up in conversation somehow, and you throw this out there and let it sit, and let the Spirit go to work. So, Again, the point is in verse 31. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now we move on to an example of something that we do not learn from Paul's letters to the churches, at least from what I can see in the scriptures. Go to Acts 20, verse 17. Acts 20, verse 17. And I know you've seen this before, but um, I don't know if you've thought, you know, about this from this point of view. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, uh, this is Paul, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. See that? There's, there's the courage that God gives us, right? I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentant to repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's letters to the churches, he forensically puts together cases of argumentation against certain attacks of the gospel. But we are not told, at least to my knowledge, that this is how Paul regularly preached the gospel to other people. Repentance towards God and faith in Christ. In the letters to the churches, Paul is usually writing to those who are already believers, already saved. He's not actively preaching the gospel to unbelievers like he is in the book of Acts. But here in Acts, we see it plainly stated that Paul preached repentance and faith as a habit to both Jews and Gentiles. And where else will we learn this from? 
If, if you didn't know this verse, if you didn't read this verse right now, where else would you know this from? That Paul preached this way. Something to think about. So again, Acts is kind of filling in some of the blanks for us. On the board, Paul preached the gospel the very same way the Lord did, telling people to repent and believe. What a shocker, huh? But it is a shocker because some, you know, in the past, I know I've been guilty of spending so much time in the letters that, you know, repentance wasn't, let's say, directly stated much in the letters. So because of that, it's not part of Paul's gospel and it's different than Jesus's. Or the letters, again, forensically building a case on certain topics. And in Acts, we see the activity of spreading the gospel. How did Paul do it? The same way Jesus did it, the same way the rest of the apostles did it. It's the same gospel. Acts 20, 21, Acts 26, 20, compared with Mark 1, 15 and Mark 6, 12 which we went to last week. Again, Paul preached the gospel the same way the Lord did, telling people to repent and believe, as did the rest of the apostles. Uh, Go to Acts 26, verse 19, for a similar uh, statement about this from Paul. Acts 26, 19. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Again, very plainly stated, this is how Paul preached and this is what Paul preached. So, Moving on from that point, as we uh, begin to close, go to Acts 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. We see another plainly stated truth here, which is incredibly powerful. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This scripture plainly states in context that God purchased the freedom of the church with his own blood. And how is that possible if God is spirit? As in John chapter 4, God is spirit. How is that even possible? Obviously, we can conclude the only one this possibly could be speaking of is Jesus Christ, which is another evidence in the Scriptures that Jesus is God himself in the flesh. But it is very plainly stated, and and we can use this to spread the truth about Jesus as Lord and Savior. Not just a man, not just a prophet, but Lord. Again, some people will fight against this statement because it doesn't make sense to human rationale. Some people just freak out when they see things like this. They're like, oh, no, that can't be. They'll dismiss it like this, just almost out of emotion, or I'm not going to believe that part, as though it's an option. It shouldn't be, but that's people. But the humble person will simply believe what is plainly stated in the Word of God and be set free by that truth. Just believe it by faith with faith for child. All right, it doesn't make sense. How does God shed his own blood? 
Even if you don't fully get it, just accept it by faith because it's plainly stated. So we're going to close this series out with another insert from the Holy Spirit. And I say this because he nudged me again to read the last few books of Acts again after I already read it. And I came to the conclusion there's nothing really there that's plainly stated that I think should be in this series. So anyway, he he knocked on my head. As hard as it is, I heard it, you know. And he said, read this again. See what you see. And after rereading it, he impressed upon me something plainly stated. Uh, Go to Acts 24, verse 14. And it's actually something that cuts right to the chase for Jews and Gentiles alike. And we're going to see in a few examples here in, in the last few chapters. Acts 24, 14. Paul says, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So we're talking about the hope or a hope in God, namely the resurrection. Look at Acts 24, verse 20. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So Paul plainly states that he was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. If we cut it all back, this is why the Jews attacked him and hated him. And what's ironic is it really doesn't make sense because if they believed the law and the prophets, they would have had no problem with Jesus rising from the dead. Go to Acts 26, verse 6. And this, so this kind of became a repeated theme for Paul here near the end of Acts. He's kind of saying, like, why don't you guys get it? This is the hope we've been living for and waiting for. Acts 26, 6. And now I, sta- I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people, if God does raise the dead. It's like, I don't get it. This is what we've been waiting for. They doubted Jesus rose from the dead when their own scriptures told them this was going to happen to the Messiah. This is what Paul argued in the synagogue so much. He kept going back to the law and the prophets saying, look what it says about the Messiah. Look how he's supposed to suffer and die. Look how he's going to be raised from the dead. This is Jesus that I'm telling you about. This was the very hope they hoped for from God. Look at Acts 26, verse 22. Paul goes on, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that the Christ was to suffer 
and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And go to Acts 28, verse 16. Again, the point here is that Paul was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Ultimately, that's what it came down to. Acts 28, 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they were willing to release me, because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel." What's the hope of Israel? I think you should know it by now, right? Look at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So as Paul went on to write in his letters as well on the board, the resurrection from the dead is the very hope man has always had in God. And without that, man is worshiping in vain. It doesn't make sense that Jews rejected Jesus because it was all supposed to happen. We know that they didn't want their little apple cart disturbed and their money and their business and their popularity and their power. But nonetheless, it's pretty obvious what they should have been expecting. So again, on the board, the resurrection from the dead is the very hope man has always had in God. And without that, man is worshiping in vain. Acts 24, 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. So let's close with these passages in Corinthians as a little uh, padding for what we just read in the book of Acts. Go to 1 Corinthians 15.1. And now with the proper perspective, think of the um, situation here, what you're reading. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is looking back at his time teaching them in Corinth years earlier in the book of Acts. So now Paul writes back to them in 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And look at verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So on the board as we close, regarding plainly stated doctrine, embrace the plainly stated truths in the word by faith and hold on to them tightly. Don't let anyone sway you from these things that you know are true in the Word and you've been convicted of by the Spirit. Hold on to them tightly, including the resurrection, which is the very hope mankind has for deliverance by the grace and mercy of our God. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your Word and it being so simple really, for us to step back and read it and have faith and be convicted by what your Spirit shows us in the moment. We thank you for all the plainly stated doctrines throughout the book of Acts. It's been a wonderful time and enjoying watching you fill in the blanks in our soul in some areas. Help us again to just embrace these things by faith and and hold on to them with the faith of a child. Father, we ask that you help us take these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.